certain way. A, a musician sometimes have a gifted ear before they have a gifted voice. Um, that's the way God opened my understanding, and he can open your understanding. And so I understand that the context that I'm choosing to read initially is not a direct application. And sometimes when you reach into a text of Scripture or the context of a Scripture and you extract out a particular doctrine, you can misuse it if you're not careful. But the way and the means that I'm going to use this today does not take away from the original text and the way it is written is still in harmony with. And I was reading in the book of Hebrews about the contrast initially of the ministry of Jesus and and uh, which were the initial contrast of the ministry of the high priest of the Aaronic lineage of the Old Testament to that of Melchizedek, which was mentioned just on a few occasions in the Word of God. And that Jesus the Bible says, was made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the reference in that sense is, he ever liveth. See, a high priest under the Aaronic lineage would die and be replaced by another high priest. But this man liveth forever. Come on now. And as a high priest, he intercedes for you and I today. Right? He, he, he joins his voice. He petitions the Father on your behalf. That's so exciting. So as we read it down here, we're going to start in the seventh chapter, and we're just going to read a 24th and the 25th verse. But this man, being Jesus, because he continueth forever, meaning in essence he is eternal. He's high above in the heavens, correct? He's eternal. He hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, you're familiar with this verse, many of you. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I know you've heard this, this uh, little phrase before. He can save you from the guttermost to the uttermost. Amen? He can. His ability to save you not only eternally, but he can also so reshape your life that you don't even look like the person you used to be. It was mentioned earlier, uh, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things pass away. All things can be made new in God. Amen? Let's go a little bit further. The ninth chapter here. Now, the theme transitions here from that of the Melchizedek priesthood. The contrast continues now, though. It's from the Aaronic priesthood and that of Jesus' priesthood, which, again, he is fulfilling the prophetical uh, unctions or the prophet, the prophecy of the Melchizedek priesthood. So the ninth chapter, the 12th through the 14th verse, because this is what is unique about Jesus. Not only was he the high priest, but he was also the sacrifice. Come on, somebody. Amen. Under that Old Testament law, there was a high priest who went into the holy place. He, daily he went into the holy place, but once a year he went into the most holy place. He went in, but he didn't offer himself. He offered the blood of a bullock or of a goat. But Jesus offered his own blood. As a priest, he offered his own blood unto God, neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his... Are y'all understanding this thus far? By his own blood. His blood was a propitiation. It's what we use, a, a big word, an expiation, a covering for our sin. It was an atonement for our sin. 
God atoned us through the blood of Jesus. If you understand the context there, we were transgressors. All had sinned and come short of the glory of God. There was none righteous, no, not one, but he laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Amen? And so, therefore, that's where we get the term redemption. He obtained uh, uh, an eternal redemption for us. It's not a temporary redemption. It's an eternal redemption. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean can sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more, even though that you are eternally saved, but you can live for God. I love that. You can live for God. You know, Romans 6 teaches us that we're no longer bound to sin. We're no longer bound to the, uh, to the natural appetite of sin that resides within us. There's a greater force inside of us. We can take the very same instruments that we used to serve sin with and serve God with. Amen? So he said, now look at this. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God. Look at this. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This work can be so great in your life that even the lingering thoughts of who you used to be can be overwhelmed by the power of what he accomplished on the cross until you can eventually arrive at the place where you serve God with a clear conscience. I know your conscience can bother you, and I know that sometimes we can wrestle with it. We often do. But once you get settled on the truth, the truth will overwhelm the uncertainty of whether or not you've been accepted by God or not. You'll know. It will be God is not a man that he should lie. Come on, somebody. And so he has saved you, and to the uttermost we read, and now he will sanctify you and purge your conscience, and you're going to be able to serve God. How powerful is that? Let's go just a little bit further, the 22nd verse. Now, this is uh, according to the teachings of the law. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. That's because in this life, Leviticus 17 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so when the animal would be spilt upon the altar it, to, for atonement, it was, in essence, giving its blood for that price of redemption. Well, the blood of bullocks and goats was insufficient to truly redeem man. That's why the context of Hebrews tells us if man had truly been redeemed, the high priest wouldn't have been back in there the next year offering the same sacrifice. Does that make sense? But this man, by one sacrifice for sin, has forever settled God's demand for justice. Come on. The gavel's not going to fall and pronounce you guilty if he's already pronounced you innocent. As long as you've accepted the redemptive work that was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. And so, again, in this, it was blood. That was the price of, pay, of payment. I know you're familiar with that. Let's read it again in the 10th chapter, the 4th verse. Again, he's showing the contrast. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Simply wasn't possible. It was a shadow of something that was yet to come. The 10th verse, by which we will, by which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. It was one sacrifice for sin forever. 12th verse, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what did he do? He sat down on the right hand of God. What does that mean? It's finished. 
Those were his last words before he gave up the ghost. He said, it is finished. Never would the, the, the priestly ministry in Jerusalem would continue until the temple was destroyed 40 years after the death of Jesus, but it was never received in heaven again because the moment that that blood of Jesus was spilt from his veins, then that satisfied God's demand for justice. Come on, somebody. Amen. It was perpetual, and it was eternal, and we're so grateful for it. Now, look at this 19th verse here. It, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness or confidence to enter into the holiest. Again, the analogy here is the priest going into the most holy place. When he went into the most holy place, he had to have blood. Not his own blood. He went in by the blood of a bullock or a goat. But the analogy shows that it was insufficient because he had to continually come back. But this man, by one sacrifice forever, gave his blood. Now you and I, following the analogy, can go into the most holy place where God is. The most holy place was not behind a veil in a temple in Jerusalem. The most holy place is in heaven itself. Come on. And you and I have access to God. Now, one day we're going to stand before him in heaven. But when you pray, how I many you know when you pray, you approach the throne of God? You may be somewhere in your car, your automobile, your living room, your bedroom, on your knees. You might be in the shower. You might be at the altar. It doesn't matter. But when you lift your voice up, then immediately, come on, by the Spirit of God, you're brought into His presence. Come on, that's what the Bible says right here. We enter into the holiest. How do we enter in? Not by our blood. Not by virtue of anything we've done. We don't attempt to carry the blood of a bullock or a goat. But we come in by virtue of the blood of Jesus. Now, we don't have a basin filled with his blood. What we have is a promise that he made. Come on, that he spoke. We come in by the oath that he spoke the word of God. That we're clean. We're made clean by his blood. And so we enter in with that boldness, that confidence. How, well, that's a new and a living way. That's not the old dying way. That's the new and the living way. Wow, that's exciting right there. He has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, you and I need to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Your conscience can be washed, and your bodies are washed with pure water. In essence, you are clean before God. I know you don't always feel clean. I know there are times you wrestle with your conscience. But in the Spirit, what God has called clean, no man's to call common. If God's cleaned you, then you're clean. Come on, you're acceptable unto God and you have access into his presence. So this passage of scriptures, we've already noted, the high priest is making the offering before God for the sins of the people, but Jesus offered himself. But because the offering was accepted, and that's what is part of the pivotal point that the author makes, when the offering is accepted, see, if you go back to the Day of Atonement, before the priest made a sacrifice for the people, he made a sacrifice for himself. Because if he wasn't declared clean by God, he couldn't intercede for the people. But when Jesus offered his blood and it was accepted, he now can make intercession for you and I. Right, because he's in the presence of God. I'm reaching upward and I'm reaching downward because the Bible says that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for us all. He reaches one hand, as this text said, to, uh, uh, what I, the phrase, the gutter, and he reaches the other to the, into glory, and he, by his grace, he pulls us together. Come on, he does. He saves us to the uttermost, changes us from the inside out. We become new creatures in Christ Jesus, and that revelation of life is lived out on our lives 
on a daily basis. He's contrasted the ministry of Melchizedek. He's contrasted the ministries of the Aaronic priesthood. And the reality is, is that Jesus' sacrifice was complete. And the reason why his was complete is because his blood was of a greater uh, it was a, of, of a greater value than the blood of a bullock or of goat. Now, there's value in all blood in this sense because in this flesh, life is in the flesh. In this life, life is in the flesh. It's in the left of the blood. But Jesus' blood is greater than the blood of bullocks and of goats. Peter said that blood was precious. That was, it meant that God put a value on it. You know, if you, value, if you buy, you know, we live in the world of exchange, and you hear something say, well, I, it's, it's only worth this to me. Well, you know what? God put a high value on the blood of Jesus, right? Now, our sin was great, and it took something of the highest value in order to exchange and to take away our transgression. And so the thing that with the greatest value in this earth was not gold or silver. It wasn't platinum or titanium. It wasn't the kingdoms of this world, but it was the blood of Jesus. That's the thing that God put the highest value on. And so when he offered it, then God considered that the, the exchange had been made. Now he could give life wherein there had been only death. Amen? So you and I can come boldly to him through the veil of his flesh, knowing that our heart has been cleansed and our bodies are washed and even our conscience can be purged and you and I can serve God in a clear conscience. And everybody said amen. Now, let's go and let me, I want to share with you a story in Scripture that, or a, an account in Scripture that will either validate this or foreshadow it. Now, the reason why I say this is it foreshadows uh, this truth that I've just shared with you because it happened before it. But in doing so, it validates as well because it was predictive, because it was a type or a typology that once it came to pass, it became a circle. One was prophetical. It was a revelation through typology. And then it looked back and brought revelation to what had happened in the past. We're going to first read two, ver two verses of Scripture from John's Gospel, and then we're going to read six verses of Scripture from the book of Numbers, and that's going to kind of wrap that up but in john the third chapter when you hear of john the third chapter you i know you think of that passage for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life 17th verse for god sent not his son into the world that the world might be uh, condemned but that the world might be saved powerful passage it's a phrase it's con connected but we're going to read the 14th and the 15th verse the verses that are right before this and it says as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life so now that makes it a little bit more clarification that in the 16th verse that God so loved you that if you would believe his son but Jesus said that the son would have to be lifted up as Moses put a serpent on a pole in the wilderness what we're going to do today is we're going to go to that famous passage of scripture there's only six verses that tell the story in the narrative it is numbers the 21st chapter we're going to read it together and we're just going to look into it because I believe that it holds certain mysteries that you and I if we can get a hold of today it will purge our conscience from dead works and we can serve the living God 
you can know that you've been accepted by virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ. Numbers, the 21st chapter. Now, this is during the sojourning of the children of Israel in their wilderness journey. They've come out of bondage, but they've not entered into the promised land. Many of you are familiar with how that they were, there were ups and downs, highs and lows. They would believe God for a while, then they would stumble in unbelief. Different things would cause them to stumble. Sometimes it was hunger. Sometimes it was thirst. And just sometimes they just didn't like the situation, and so they complained. And this is one of those passages here, and it's in the... Uh, Let's read it in the fourth verse. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way that Moses had chosen and just everything that was going on. They were discouraged. It was challenging time to journey through the wilderness. And so the people spoke against God, fifth verse. And against Moses, and you have got to catch that. It's not just against God that they're speaking, but it's against Moses. Be careful talking about the preacher. Come on, somebody. Amen. Let's go a little bit further. Wherefore, have you brought us out of Egypt? So they're complaining to the preacher, to Moses. You've brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness. There is no bread. Well, that's not true. God's been dropping manna from heaven, right? Yeah, they can make bread. God didn't drop loaves down. He dropped the ability to make a loaf. But they, didn't, they must have just wanted somebody to make a loaf for them. And so, it, it, as I says, there's neither any bread in our soul. It, it loathes. They, they were tired of manna. They were tired of it. And so, look at this. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And I'm not going to debate the, the, the different doctrinal positions, whether God allowed the serpents to bite them and whether it was the devil. I don't, I'm not going to go there. The text simply said the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. And I know you... <laughs> I'll tell you, there are several ways, many ways that if you could write down and say, I don't want to go out. One of which is by snake bite. Come on, somebody. Amen. I know many of you, before the toxins could take place, you would check out of here by a heart attack long before that happened. But you can picture this passage of Scripture because of their complaint against both Moses and the Lord. The fiery serpents have come out of the rocks in the desert and bit the people. And the Bible plainly says many people have died. Now, in typology in Scripture, typically this picture has been viewed as the same as sin and death. Because what was captured in the Old Testament, the lens of the Old Testament, is a picture concerning a truth that would later be revealed in the New Testament. And there's that thing called sin and death. Sin leads to death. Come on, somebody. James 1 says, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Both spiritual death, but also death in your own life. Let's go a little bit further. Romans 5 and 12 says death by sin. Romans 6 and 16 says sin unto death. Romans 6 and 23 says the wages of sin is death. Sin is the transgression of the law. When we break the law of commandments in our lives, it eventually leads to death. It's not just spiritual death, but it's just a life that's filled with death, void of the joy of, of, of holiness and the joy of righteousness that God gives us because we're in covenant with him. The people were bitten by these poisonous vipers. If you've studied this out in the past, snake venom possesses both neurotoxins, which will affect the nervous systems, and 
hemotoxins, which affect the circulatory system. And going in and researching this, I've discovered that the poison of serpents will begin to dissolve cells and tissues. Now, we're looking at this through the natural eye for a moment of time. We're looking at the actual breakdown of the physical body when a person has been bitten by a poisonous snake, an adder or a pit viper, something of that nature. In America, it would be a rattlesnake or a copperhead. But also, all the while that I'm preaching this, I want you to be thinking about sin and the effects of sin in the life of an individual. When you think about the eroding of the flesh, the dissolving of the cells and the tissues, the pain and the swelling, I want you to think about how sin can make your family painful. Come on, it can make your marriage painful. It can make life painful. I want you to think about that when that neuro, that, those toxins destroy cardiac muscles and it alters the heart's ability to contract and can lead to heart failure. I want you to think about how people's uh, lives can begin to break down under the weight of sin. I want you to think about how if, if that poison can destroy capillary walls and cause hemorrhaging. I want you to think about how families can hemorrhage. Come on, church family, over the presence of sin where people are just sinful against God. When you think about the, that the, 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 the venom can cause a prevention or it can foster blood clotting either way and coagulation. It can destroy both red and white blood cells and it can block nerve transmissions and make breathing very, very difficult. Now, I've seen people in their families, in their homes, it's just hard. You know, they're just out of breath because they don't have the ability to just square their shoulders back and just breathe in a confidence before God because of the presence of sin. And when I put this, so I'm looking at this both in the natural realm, but I'm thinking of it spiritually as well because that's what the Bible tells me to do. First, that which is natural, then that which is spiritual. So for a moment of time, let me give you just some statistics. Did you know five to six people die in the United States every year as a result of a snake bite? But that dims in comparison to over 100,000 people, even in the modern era, die annually around the world of a snake bite. 10,000 die in India alone every year because of snake bites. Some snakes are more aggressive than others. We don't know what type of snake they're serpent. It's just called a fiery serpent. I know if I would have saw it, I would have gotten, come on somebody. And uh, the oxus cobra in Afghanistan, when, in, when biting, it will hold on. And chew savagely. The saw-scaled viper is extremely short-tempered. And it's reported to chase its victims aggressively. Now, it's one thing to be walking in the woods and, Whoa, shatakaya mosia, and see that snake. And then you turn and go the other direction. And usually that snake will just, snake will just coil up and he'll stay. It's another thing to see that snake and like, ah, and take off. And you look back down and he's running you down. I have to believe that that's what happened in the wilderness, that the people were literally run down by those fiery serpents. And when they were bitten, they did not die instantly, but they died over a period of weeks, a slow and painful death. How many of you know that's like a sinful life? It's like a sinful life that you just die this slow, painful death. You know, to be honest, most of the trauma in my life and in your life comes from sin. Not always your sin. Many times you're the victim of someone else's transgression. But it still has a way of coming around and bringing trauma to your life, to people that you are directly affected by. The passage then says, seventh verse, let's read this together. Therefore, the people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned. Y'all stay with me. We're just getting there. We've just now arrived where we're going to begin to share this. We've sinned. For we've spoken against the Lord and against thee. 
So would you pray unto the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us? And so Moses, who's acting like a high priest in this moment, goes in and he intercedes before God because the people seem to be sincere in their repentance and they're saying, we have sinned. They are noting that they've sinned. They're confessing their sin to God and they're saying, would you go and would you pray that God would take away the serpent? Notice their request that he would take away the serpent. So Moses went in and prayed unto the people or prayed for the people. But notice this, that we, as we read the eighth verse, God did not take away the fiery serpent. What God did instead was to give an antidote because you could still be in the camp or you could be outside the camp on the edge of a hillside there in the wilderness journey and a snake could still come and run run you down and bite you. God did not take away the serpent, but he gave an antidote. Now look at what the antidote was. The Lord said to Moses, make thee a fiery serpent. We can put that picture up here in just a moment and set it on a pole and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it, he shall live. And so Moses made a serpent of brass and he set it on a pole and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass then he lived what a powerful verse of scripture because God did not take away the serpents that were present there in the wilderness rather through the antidote he gave the people a means to actually receive healing from the effects of the poison after the serpent had bitten them the text said that the people noticed this that they could look upon it eighth verse it says there in the ninth verse that they could behold the serpent so put the pole up if we can for just a moment you can see it this is just an artist's drawing that there was a pole erected in the wilderness with a brazen serpent on it so if you were out in the camp and you had sinned against God or whatever capacity or even if you were just living life washing the dishes down by the brook and all of a sudden out of the bush that was beside the brook came an and it latched onto your heel and bit you and that poison was now in your system that you would have died but if you could get somebody to help carry you and you could get where you could actually look up and you didn't just glance you don't just glance at this but you behold it the bible says in the hebrew that the word behold means you look intently you gaze thereon you you're looking expectantly because why the prophet moses had heard the voice of god that god said if you will look upon the brazen serpent on the pole then you'll be healed and so even if that the poison had already begun to break your tissue down even if you are beginning to succumb to the breathing and the limited ability to breathe, if you could just get inside of that pole with that brazen serpent upon it, then the miraculous power of the authoritative voice of God would come down and would flow through the faith that you exhibited by looking on the pole and the life of God would enter into your body and it would neutralize the effects of the poison and it would begin a healing process and the person that was bitten could now be healed come on isn't that exciting church family now what's exciting just remember this jesus said in john chapter number three as moses lifted up the serpent so must the son of man be lifted up you know this church family the serpent bit us all all that came out of adam we were all bitten by sin and then we sinned as a result of having the fact that we were bitten that we were sinners so therefore we sinned and we've all sinned and come short of the glory of god but i came along to tell you god has 
has not taken away your ability to sin. He's not hidden the devil under a rock somewhere. The devil's still present. But I want you to know God gave us an antidote. If you and I by faith will lift up our eyes to a bleeding Savior that hung on a cross called Calvary and gave his blood, then the very life of God can flow inside of us and the effects of Adam's transgression can be eradicated in your life and you can be made whole and then a healing process can be started in your life and your limbs that were breaking down by the effects of sin can gain strength again. You can get up off your bed of affliction. You can get up out of your bed of iniquity and you can begin to walk freely in this life serving God because you looked, my God, because you looked, because you looked, because you looked. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? Because you looked to the one that died on the tree. Thank God for the blood of Jesus today. I don't know about you, but nothing gets me excited more than when I just think about the blood. I couldn't enter into his presence. I had no right to go before God, but Jesus gave his blood on the cross and he washed my sins away. He cleansed my conscience from dead works and now I can serve the living God. Now I know that I'm found in him. I am that new creature in Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus has made me that way. But you know what people are doing today? Too many, far too many. We just glance at the cross. You can't just glance at the cross. You've got to look intently at what he did. You've got to get this word out and begin to hide it in your heart and meditate on it and think about it. And you've got to read Colossians and you've got to see how Colossians says that you were translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And what was the means to take you from darkness to light? It was the blood when God applied the blood on the cross of Calvary. When Jesus shed the blood, God brought us into fellowship with the Father. And when you get that down inside you, it begins to work a change. Not only will you be eternally accepted before the Father, but you will also have a confidence. You can enter in boldly. See, when you know about the blood, you can pray with confidence. When you don't know about the blood, you're always wondering, doubtful, did God accept me? I failed, I'm up, I'm down, I'm high, I'm low, I sinned, I messed up, I repented. But when you know about the blood, this man offered one sacrifice for sin forever and he's sitting down on the right hand of God and he ever lives to make intercession for you and I and he's trusting that the virtue of his blood is greater than the effects of the poison that has entered into your life. The power of that blood... Come on, somebody. I said the power of that blood. Have you ever asked this question? I'm going to take you a little deep. Can we go a little bit deeper here today? I just feel like going deeper. I've been preaching politically for a couple weeks, and I've moved all that out of the way just to get back to theology because that's what I like the most. Why a serpent on a pole? Have you ever asked that question and said, why? Go back to that. Why a serpent on a pole? Because he was called the Lamb of God. Remember what John said in the banks of the river Jordan, water swirling through his feet. James and Andrew and Philip were there. And he looked at Jesus when he came walking down into the water. And he said, Behold. He didn't say, Behold the serpent of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin 
of the world. Have you ever wondered and said, why didn't Moses put a serpent on a pole? And even Jesus confirmed that it was a prophetical type of him being raised up on the cross. It's because, catch the words of John first, that taketh away the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. Listen, Paul understood the mystery of what happened on the cross. He wrote this word. Catch it very carefully. He was made to be sin who knew no sin. He was made to be sin. God put upon him the iniquity of us all, the poison of the viper, the sin of Adam, the transgression of all men everywhere was put upon Jesus on the cross. Paul wrote it further in Galatians 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? He was made a curse for us. He was made a curse on the cross. It is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Cursed, when I think of a snake, I think about the curse. Listen, I don't jump very high anymore. You go back into the gym. You know, I used to, I could float pretty good back in the day. But now I'm like trying to get the net. <laughs> but I've been in the woods and I bumped a limb and it shook some leaves, and I thought it was a rattler. And I'm telling you, I had a 48-inch vertical leap. <laughs> Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Because when I think about a serpent and a snake in the woods, I think about the curse. I, I don't know about you. I think about the curse, the transgression of man that deserved the righteous judgment of God. But how many know God laid it upon Jesus? Oh, the power of that redemptive work. Listen to this. Sin is the transgression of the law. The curse of, the, of sin is a result of transgression of the law. Jesus had made, was made a curse for us. He took our sin nature and was made to be sin on the tree. And so he took the penalty of our sin. And so as Israel looked to the serpent on the tree or on the pole and they, the, they were miraculously healed from the effects of the venom and the healing process began, so it is for sin and a sinful life. Right, if you and I will look to the tree, to the cross, and the virtue of the power of redemption will begin to flow into your life. Not only will you be forgiven, but your lives will begin to be healed. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Amen. From the effects of that sin. Now, can I go just a little bit further today? I hadn't even got to some of the more exciting stuff. Y'all stay with me for just a few more moments. I want to contrast this. Now, I'm going to keep it in its same context, talking about the blood, but I want to contrast it for a little bit, if I can, for a moment. Because there is a biblical principle that once you get this in your heart, first that which is natural, then that which is spiritual. God often reveals deep spiritual truths through natural principles. How many of you have ever experienced that in your life? And you know that in the Word of God. Now, I told you earlier that in today's modern era, people around the world, 100,000 people still die annually from a snake bite. Did you know how many of you knew that amount was so high? When only five or six die in these United States annually. Most, and here's the reason why, most that die from a snake bite die in developing countries where access to medical care is not readily available or it's very limited. And part of the problem is the anti-venom, it's actually anti-venin is the actual name, is very expensive. So if you get bit by a copperhead, all right, first of all, shake that thing off in Jesus' name. Pray in the Holy Ghost and still go to the doctor. If you have to have anti-venin, 
it's $1,600 a vial. It takes between 20 and 25 vials to treat one snake bite victim. All right, let's go a little bit further with this. So the expense occurs because it's a, I'm almost finished, y'all stay with It's a difficult thing to produce because you know snakes have to be milked of their venom by hand. That's not a job I want to sign up for. <laughs> Let's go a little bit further with that. Did you know that the coral snake in the United States is the most poison of all snakes in the United States? Did you know it took 69,000 milkings over three years to produce one pint of venom to be able to produce an anti-venom? It's only been done one time in its lifetime, and it's almost gone. And when it's gone, I don't know if they're... You better pray if you get bitten by that coral snake. Come on now. Let's go a little bit further. And so anti-venin is produced. If you've never read this before, anti-venin is produced by injecting smaller doses into the body of a host. And so the host body would produce through its immune system antibodies that could then a few weeks later be drawn out of the host and it would produce the anti-venin. That's how it's been done for the last 60 or 70 years. Uh, it's almost 100 years old since the anti-venin has been available. Now, historically, the horse has been the host of choice. So they would take the blood, or excuse me, the venom that of an of a, of a asp or of, in, in America, we would think of a copperhead or a water moccasin or a rattlesnake, and they would inject it into a horse. They would allow the horse's body to produce through its immune system antibodies, and then they would extract the blood of the horse, and they would thereby then make the antivenin. But there was a problem. There's been a historical problem with using a horse's blood. The proteins in a horse's blood are so strong that sometimes people die that receive antivenin not because of the snake bite, but because of the proteins in the blood of the horse are too great that it causes the death of the victim that was already bitten by the snake. Now, how bad is that? But in the mid-1980s, a group of researchers in New Zealand found that if they took the venom of snakes and they injected it into sheep, including lambs, Come on, somebody, that the sheep or the lamb's blood, let me just say it again. Y'all aren't catching it. If I was at a black church right now, somebody would already be on the organ, and somebody would be running right now. Because what they found out was if they took the poison of the serpent and put it into the lamb, that the lamb's blood would overcome the power of the poison. They would take it out and make the anti-venin. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about what Jesus did on the cross and the virtue of the power of the blood, how many of you know that on that cross, he took our transgressions? They pierced his side. They pierced his hands. They pierced his head, a serpent bite of sin. But the power of that precious blood began to break down the sin nature of Adam, overwhelmed it. And when the blood flowed out, the anti-venom was produced. And if you'll just look to the cross, the power of the virtue of the blood of Jesus will make your life whole. Come on, somebody. Let's give God glory today. Hallelujah. And so, let's think about this as I close today. Let's think about, let's try to put it all together. Even in the natural, the blood of the lamb can save you from a serpent's bite. 
You get snake bit and climb up, up Sugarloaf Mountain. They rush you down to the hospital. They reach into their refrigerator. They pull out an anti-venom. That anti-venom was produced because somebody in New Zealand took the blood of a serpent, put it into a lamb. The lamb or a sheep's blood overcame the power of that poison. And now you have a means to recover your life because of the sacrifice of that sheep or of that lamb. And I'm telling you what a picture that was of what happened at the cross of Calvary. And so today, no wonder Peter said his blood was precious. Hebrews 9 says, how much more, just say it with me, how much more shall the blood of Jesus purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? God gave the highest price. We sang it a moment ago in the song. The highest price was paid so that you and I could have life and have it more abundantly. Well, I'm going to go one further than that today. I just feel like trumping everybody, and I'm not even meaning to reference anything political today. I'm going to just reference this real quickly as you stand up with me here today. To add to the analogy of the anti-venom, let's just look at it. Let's contrast it for a moment. There was a man by the name of Bill Host, H-A-A-S-T. He was a famous snake handler who was known, and I'm not talking about Pentecostal snake handlers, you know what I'm talking about where the dancing around in front of the church? Let me know if that happens in here. It's not when Pastor Brown is the pastor. If that happens in here, you better get ready. Craig Spangler's going to be loaded. You better start ducking around here right away. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Are y'all with me there today? We're getting ready to close. But it's, hey, it might be, this might be the best just yet. So this brother, Bill Hast, uh, he, he was a, uh, the snake handler. He's the one that milked the coral snake over the period of three years, 69,000 times to produce that venom or that, that, that pint of venom. He died of natural causes at the age of 100 years old, though he handled snakes as many as 100 times a day. But it's because in 1948, he began to inject just a small dose of cobra venom in his own bloodstream until he built up an antibody or an immune, his own immune system. And before he died of natural causes at 100 years old, Joe, he had been bitten 172 times by the world's most poisonous vipers. Not just American continent, you know, the, the North American continent vipers. I'm talking about the, the asp and the mamba and the cobra, the world's deadliest. I think the... the the water moccasin is the highest in the United States, I think, and it's number 23rd on the list. The poisonous vipers are not in our neck of the woods. And somebody said, thank you, Jesus. I felt that right there. All right, now, but here, what, listen to this. So he survived 172 bites because he had built up that immunity. Did you know before he died, they start, he started donating his blood through direct... Uh, what, what is it called, intravenously? And they would fly him around the world if someone was bitten by a serpent that they didn't have an anti-venom for, and they would hook a needle to the arm of the victim, and they would hook a needle to his arm, and he would give his blood, and he saved 21 people's lives around the world because his blood... I feel Jesus in here today because his blood had an antibody that could overcome the power of that poison. 
Well, let me go in conclusion today. There was one man by the name of Jesus that was lifted up on a pole between heaven and of earth so that all men everywhere, not just 21, not just blacks or whites, but all men of all color, not just rich or poor. Come on, somebody. It doesn't matter. No matter where you are, no matter where you've been, if you'll just look to the blood of Jesus that was spilled on the cross of Calvary, and if you'll look intently and you'll gaze into his redemptive work and you'll pray about the blood and contemplate about the blood and thank God for the virtue of the blood and if you'll walk through your house at night and you'll say God I plead the blood over my children I plead the blood over my wife I plead the blood over my husband I plead the blood over my grandchildren I bind the devil by virtue of the blood of Jesus today God I'm covered the effects of sin shall sin shall not why do I say it so confidently sin shall not have dominion over me why because of the blood of Jesus has overwhelmed sin's power to destroy hallelujah today so if I can ask you in closing today for just a moment of time as our heads bow and our eyes closed can you even with the closed eye and with the bowed overhead can you look to the blood can you look I can't do it for you neighbor your mother your father can't do it for you you got to do it for yourself all we can do is bring you close to the cross If your life is hemorrhaging today, if your life is hemorrhaging from the presence of sin, from the effects of sin, and you say, today, Pastor, I just want to look to that blood, then I'll pray with you right where you are. As long as you look intently, it's not about moving forward, moving left or right. It's about you looking intently to the cross of Calvary. You're here today, and you say, Pastor, my life is hemorrhaging as a result of sin in my life, my family, my home. But today I want to look to the virtue and the wonders of that blood that Jesus shed on the cross. Pastor, would you pray with me? Lift your hand. I'll pray with you right where you are. Thank you. I see that hand. Anyone else? That hand, that hand, that hand. Young adults are raising their hands right now. Thank you for raising that hand today. Come on, will you look? Will you look today? Will you look? Anybody else? Will you raise your hand today? Anyone else say, Pastor, there's hemorrhaging in my life. There's hemorrhaging in my life right now. But look, will you look today? The church can't help you. We can do our best. We can help carry you close. But you got to look. Would you look to the cross? Would you look to the blood today? Would you look to what he did to accomplish at the cross for you and I? Would you look today? Would you look? We're getting ready to pray. Right here, right now, in this moment, in this hour. We're praying with you right now. Church family, would you take a moment? I know. I'm